Chapters 25, 26, and 27. Smith in the City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.blogsome.com. Today's reading by Kara Schallenberg. www.kray.org. Smith in the City by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapters 25, 26, and 27. Chapter 25 At the Telephone. If one looks closely into those actions which are apparently due to sudden impulse, one generally finds that the sudden impulse was merely the last of a long series of events which led up to the action. Alone it would not have been powerful enough to affect anything, but, coming after the way has been paved for it, it is irresistible. The hooligan who bonnets a policeman is apparently the victim of a sudden impulse. In reality, however, the bonneting is due to weeks of daily encounters with the constable, at each of which meetings the dislike for his helmet and the idea of smashing it in grow a little larger, till finally they blossom into the deed itself. This is what happened in Mike's case. Day by day, through the summer, as the city grew hotter and stuffier, his hatred of the bank became more and more the thought that occupied his mind. It only needed a moderately strong temptation to make him break out and take the consequences. Smith noticed his restlessness, and endeavoured to soothe it. "'All is not well,' he said, "'with Comrade Jackson, the sunshine of the home. I note a certain wanness of the cheek. The peach-bloom of your complexion is no longer up to sample. Your eye is wild. Your merry laugh no longer rings through the bank, causing nervous customers to leap into the air with startled exclamations. You have the manner of one whose only friend on earth is a yellow dog, and who has lost the dog. Why is this, Comrade Jackson?' They were talking in the flat at Clement's Inn. The night was hot. Through the open windows the roar of the strand sounded faintly. Mike walked to the window and looked out. "'I'm sick of all this rot,' he said shortly. Smith shot an inquiring glance at him, but said nothing. This restlessness of Mike's was causing him a good deal of inconvenience— which he bore in patient silence, hoping for better times. With Mike obviously discontented and out of tune with all the world, there was but little amusement to be extracted from the evenings now. Mike did his best to be cheerful, but could not shake off the caged feeling which made him restless. "'What rot it all is!' went on Mike, sitting down again. "'What's the good of it all?' You go and sweat all day at a desk, day after day, for about tuppence a year, and when you're about eighty-five you retire. It isn't living at all, it's simply being a bally vegetable. You aren't hankering, by any chance, to be a pirate of the Spanish main, or anything like that, are you? inquired Smith. And all this rot about going out east, continued Mike. "'What's the good of going out east?' 
"'I gather from casual chit-chat in the office "'that one becomes something of a blood "'when one goes out east,' said Smith. "'Have a dozen native clerks under you, "'all looking up to you as the last word in magnificence, "'and end by marrying the governor's daughter. "'End by getting some foul sort of fever, more likely, "'and being booted out as no further use to the bank.' "'You look on the gloomy side, Comrade Jackson. "'I seem to see you sitting in an armchair, fanned by devoted coolies, "'telling some eastern potentate that you can give him five minutes. "'I understand that being in a bank in the far east "'is one of the world's softest jobs. "'Millions of natives hang on your lightest word. "'Enthusiastic rajahs draw you aside "'and press jewels into your hand as a token of respect and esteem.' When on an elephant's back you pass, somebody beats on a brooming brass gong, the banker of bong. Isn't your generous young heart stirred to any extent by the prospect? I am given to understand. I've a jolly good mind to, to chuck up the whole thing and become a pro. I've got a birth qualification for Surrey. It's about the only thing I could do any good at. Smith's manner became fatherly. "'You're all right,' he said. "'The hot weather has given you that tired feeling. "'What you want is a change of air. "'We will pop down together, hand in hand, this weekend, "'to some seaside resort. "'You shall build sand-castles, "'while I lie on the beach and read the paper. "'In the evening we will listen to the band, "'or stroll on the esplanade, "'not so much because we want to, "'as to give the natives a treat.' Possibly, if the weather continues warm, we may even paddle. A vastly exhilarating pastime, I am led to believe, and so strengthening for the ankles. And on Monday morning we will return, bronzed and bursting with health, to our toil once more. "'I'm going to bed,' said Mike, rising. Smith watched him lounge from the room, and shook his head sadly. All was not well with his confidential secretary and adviser. The next day, which was a Thursday, found Mike no more reconciled to the prospect of spending from ten till five in the company of Mr. Gregory and the ledgers. He was silent at breakfast, and Smith, seeing that things were still wrong, abstained from conversation. Mike propped the sportsman, up against the hot water jug, and read the cricket news. His county, captained by Brother Joe, had, as he had learned already from yesterday's evening paper, beaten Sussex by five wickets at Brighton. Today they were due to play Middlesex at Lord's. Mike thought that he would try to get off early, and go and see some of the first day's play. As events turned out, he got off a good deal earlier, and saw a good deal more of the first day's play than he had anticipated. He had just finished the preliminary stages of the morning's work, which consisted mostly of washing his hands, changing his coat, and eating a section of a pen-holder, when William, the messenger, approached. "'You're wanted on the phone, Mr. Jackson.' 
The new Asiatic bank, unlike the majority of London banks, was on the telephone, a fact which Smith found a great convenience when securing seats at the theatre. Mike went to the box and took up the receiver. "'Hello,' he said. "'Who's that?' said an agitated voice. "'Is that you, Mike? I'm Joe.' "'Hello, Joe,' said Mike. "'What's up? I'm coming to see you this evening. "'I'm going to try and get off early.' "'Look here, Mike. Are you busy at the bank just now?' "'Not at the moment. There's never anything much going on before eleven. "'I mean, are you busy today? Could you possibly manage to get off and play for us against Middlesex?' "'Mike nearly dropped the receiver. "'What?' he cried. "'There's been the dickens of a mix-up. We're one short, and you're our only hope. We can't possibly get another man in the time. We start in half an hour. Can you play?' For the space of perhaps one minute, Mike thought. "'Well?' said Joe's voice. The sudden vision of Lord's ground, all green and cool in the morning sunlight, was too much for Mike's resolution, sapped as it was by days of restlessness. The feeling surged over him that, whatever happened afterwards, the joy of the match in perfect weather on a perfect wicket would make it worth while. What did it matter what happened afterwards? "'All right, Joe,' he said. "'I'll hop into a cab now, and go and get my things.' "'Good man,' said Joe, hugely relieved. End of chapter 25 Chapter 26 Breaking the News Dashing away from the call-box, Mike nearly cannoned into Smith, who was making his way pensively to the telephone, with the object of ringing up the box-office of the Haymarket Theatre. "'Sorry,' said Mike. "'Hello, Smith.' "'Hello, indeed,' said Smith courteously. "'I rejoice, Comrade Jackson, to find you going about your commercial duties like a young bomb. "'How is it?' people repeatedly ask me, "'that Comrade Jackson contrives to catch his employer's eye "'and win the friendly smile from the head of his department. "'My reply is that, where others walk, Comrade Jackson runs. "'Where others stroll, Comrade Jackson legs it like a highly trained mustang of the prairie.' He does not loiter. He gets back to his department, bathed in perspiration in level time. He— "'I say, Smith,' said Mike, "'you might do me a favor. "'A thousand! Say on! "'Just look in at the fixed deposits, and tell old Gregory that I shan't be with him today, will you? I haven't time myself. I must rush.' Smith screwed his eyeglass into his eye, and examined Mike carefully. "'What exactly?' he began. "'Tell the old ass I've popped off.' "'Just so, just so,' murmured Smith, as one who assents to a thoroughly reasonable proposition. 
"'Tell him you have popped off. "'It shall be done. "'But it is within the bounds of possibility "'that Comrade Gregory may inquire further. "'Could you give me some inkling "'as to why you are popping?' "'My brother Joe has just rung me up from Lords. "'The county are playing Middlesex, and they're one short. "'He wants me to roll up.' "'Smith shook his head sadly. "'I don't wish to interfere in any way,' he said. "'But I suppose you realize that, by acting thus, "'you are to some extent knocking the stuffing out of your chances "'of becoming manager of this bank.' "'If you dash off now, I shouldn't count too much on that "'marrying the governor's daughter scheme I sketched out for you last night. "'I doubt whether this is going to help you hold the gorgeous east in fee, "'and all that sort of thing.' "'Oh, dash the gorgeous east!' "'By all means,' said Smith obligingly. "'I just thought I'd mention it. "'I'll look in at Lord's this afternoon.' I shall send my card up to you, and trust to your sympathetic cooperation to enable me to effect an entry into the pavilion on my face. My father is coming up to London today. I'll bring him along, too. Right-ho. Dash it, it's twenty-two. So long. See you at Lord's. Smith looked after his retreating form till it had vanished through the swing door, and shrugged his shoulders resignedly as if disclaiming all responsibility. "'He has gone without his hat,' he murmured. "'It seems to me that this is practically a case of running amok, and now to break the news to bereaved Comrade Gregory.' He abandoned his intention of ringing up the Haymarket Theatre, and, turning away from the call-box, walked meditatively down the aisle, till he came to the fixed deposits department, where the top of Mr. Gregory's head was to be seen over the glass barrier, as he applied himself to his work. Smith, resting his elbows on the top of the barrier, and holding his head between his hands, eyed the absorbed toiler for a moment in silence, then emitted a hollow groan. Mr. Gregory, who was ruling a line in a ledger. Most of the work in the fixed deposits department consisted of ruling lines in ledgers, sometimes in black ink, sometimes in red. Started as if he had been stung, and made a complete mess of the ruled line. He lifted a fiery bearded face, and met Smith's eye, which shone with kindly sympathy. He found words. "'What the dickens are you standing there for, mooing like a blanked cow?' he inquired. "'I was groaning,' explained Smith, with quiet dignity. "'And why was I groaning?' he continued. "'Because a shadow has fallen on the fixed deposits department. Comrade Jackson, the pride of the office, has gone.' Mr. Gregory rose from his seat. "'I don't know who the dickens you are,' he began. "'I am Smith,' said the old Etonian. "'Oh, you're Smith, are you?' "'With a preliminary P, which, however, is not sounded.' 
"'And what's all this dashed nonsense about Jackson?' "'He is gone. "'Gone like the dew from the petal of a rose.' "'Gone? "'Where's he gone to?' "'Lords.' "'What lords?' "'Smith waved his hand gently. "'You misunderstand me. "'Comrade Jackson has not gone to mix "'with any member of our gay and thoughtless aristocracy.' He has gone to Lord's Cricket Ground. Mr. Gregory's beard bristled even more than was its wont. What? he roared. Gone to watch a cricket match? Gone? Not to watch, to play. An urgent summons, I need not say. Nothing but an urgent summons could have wrenched him from your very delightful society, I am sure. Mr. Gregory glared. "'I don't want any of your impudence,' he said. Smith nodded gravely. "'We all have these curious likes and dislikes,' he said tolerantly. "'You do not like my impudence. "'Well, well, some people don't. "'And now, having broken the sad news, "'I will return to my own department.' "'Half a minute. "'You come with me and tell this yarn of yours to Mr. Bickersdyke.' "'You think it would interest, amuse him? "'Perhaps you are right. "'Let us buttonhole Comrade Bickersdyke.' "'Mr. Bickersdyke was disengaged. "'The head of the fixed deposits department stumped into the room. "'Smith followed at a more leisurely pace. "'Allow me,' he said, with a winning smile, "'as Mr. Gregory opened his mouth to speak.' "'to take this opportunity of congratulating you on your success at the election, "'a narrow but well-deserved victory.' "'There was nothing cordial in the manager's manner. "'What do you want?' he said. "'Myself nothing,' said Smith. "'But I understand that Mr. Gregory has some communication to make.' "'Tell Mr. Bickersdyke that story of yours,' said Mr. Gregory. "'Surely,' said Smith, reprovingly, "'this is no time for anecdotes. "'Mr. Bickersdyke is busy. "'He—' "'Tell him what you told me about Jackson.' "'Mr. Bickersdyke looked up inquiringly. "'Jackson,' said Smith, "'has been obliged to absent himself from work to-day. "'owing to an urgent summons from his brother, "'who, I understand, has suffered a bereavement.' "'It's a lie!' roared Mr. Gregory. "'You told me yourself he'd gone to play in a cricket match.' "'True. "'As I said, he received an urgent summons from his brother. "'What about the bereavement, then?' "'The team was one short.' His brother was very distressed about it. What could Comrade Jackson do? Could he refuse to help his brother when it was in his power? His generous nature is a byword. He did the only possible thing. He consented to play. Mr. Bickersdyke spoke. "'Am I to understand,' he asked, with sinister calm, "'that Mr. Jackson has left his work?' 
and gone off to play in a cricket match. Something of that sort has, I believe, happened, said Smith. He knew, of course, he added, bowing gracefully in Mr. Gregory's direction, that he was leaving his work in thoroughly competent hands. Thank you, said Mr. Bickersdyke. That will do. You will help Mr. Gregory in his department for the time being, Mr. Smith. I will arrange for somebody to take your place in your own department. It will be a pleasure, murmured Smith. Show Mr. Smith what he has to do, Mr. Gregory, said the manager. They left the room. How curious, Comrade Gregory, mused Smith as they went. Are the workings of fate. A moment back, and your life was a blank. Comrade Jackson, that prince of fixed depositors, had gone. How, you said to yourself despairingly, can his place be filled? Then the cloud broke, and the sun shone out again. I came to help you. What you lose on the swings, you make up on the roundabouts. Now, show me what I have to do. And then let us make this department sizzle. You have drawn a good ticket, Comrade Gregory. End of chapter twenty six. Chapter twenty seven. At Lord's. Mike got to Lord's just as the umpires moved out into the field. He raced round to the pavilion. Joe met him on the stairs. It's all right, he said. No hurry. We've won the toss. I've put you in fourth wicket. Right ho, said Mike. Glad we haven't had to field just yet. We oughtn't to have to field today if we don't chuck our wickets away. Good wicket? Like a billiard table. I'm glad you were able to come. Have any difficulty in getting away? Joe Jackson's knowledge of the workings of a bank was of the slightest. He himself had never, since he left Oxford, been in a position where there were obstacles to getting off to play in first class cricket. By profession, he was agent to a sporting baronet whose hobby was the cricket of the county, and so, far from finding any difficulty in playing for the county, He was given to understand by his employer that that was his chief duty. It never occurred to him that Mike might find his bank less amenable in the matter of giving leave. His only fear, when he rang Mike up that morning, had been that this might be a particularly busy day at the new Asiatic Bank. If there was no special rush of work, he took it for granted that Mike would simply go to the manager. Ask for leave to play in the match, and be given it with a beaming smile. Mike did not answer the question, but asked one on his own account. How did you happen to be short? he said. It was rotten luck. It was like this. We were altering our team after the Sussex match to bring in Ballard, Keane, and Willis. They couldn't get down to Brighton, as the varsity had a match, but there was nothing on for them in the last half of the week, so they'd promised to roll up. 
Ballard, Keane, and Willis were members of the Cambridge team, all very capable performers, and much in demand by the county when they could get away to play for it. Well, said Mike. Well, we all came up by train from Brighton last night, but these three asses had arranged to motor down from Cambridge early today and get here in time for the start. What happens? Why, Willis, who fancies himself as a chauffeur, undertakes to do the driving, and naturally, being an absolute rotter, goes and smashes up the whole concern just outside St. Albans. The first thing I knew of it was when I got to Lord's at half past ten and found a wire waiting for me to say that they were all three of them crocked and couldn't possibly play. I tell you, it was a bit of a jar to get half an hour before the match started. Willis has sprained his ankle, apparently, Keene's damaged his wrist, and Ballard has smashed his collar bone. I don't suppose they'll be able to play in the varsity match. Rotten luck for Cambridge. Well, fortunately, we'd had two reserve pros with us at Brighton, who had come up to London with the team, in case they might be wanted, so, with them, we were only one short. Then I thought of you. That's how it was. I see, said Mike. Who are the pros? Davis and Brockley, both bowlers. It weakens our batting a lot. Ballard or Willis might have got a stack of runs on this wicket. Still, we've got a certain amount of batting as it is. We oughtn't to do badly if we're careful. You've been getting some practice, I suppose, this season. In a sort of a way, nets and so on. No matches of any importance. Dash it, I wish you'd had a game or two in decent class cricket. Still, nets are better than nothing. I hope you'll be in form. We may want a pretty long knock from you if things go wrong. These men seem to be settling down all right, thank goodness, he added, looking out of the window at the county's first pair, Warrington and Mills, two professionals who, as the result of ten minutes' play, had put up twenty. I'd better go and change, said Mike. Picking up his bag. You're in first wicket, I suppose. Yes, and Reggie second wicket. Reggie was another of Mike's brothers, not nearly so fine a player as Joe, but a sound bat who generally made runs if allowed to stay in. Mike changed and went out into the little balcony at the top of the pavilion. He had it to himself. There were not many spectators in the pavilion at this early stage of the game. There are few more restful places, if one wishes to think, than the upper balconies of Lord's Pavilion. Mike, watching the game making its leisurely progress on the turf below, set himself seriously to review the situation in all its aspects. The exhilaration of bursting the bonds had begun to fade. And he found himself able to look into the matter of his desertion and weigh up the consequences. There was no doubt that he had cut the painter once and for all. Even a friendly disposed management could hardly overlook what he had done, 
and the management of the new Asiatic bank was the very reverse of friendly. Mr. Bickersdyke, he knew, would jump at this chance of getting rid of him. He realized that he must look on his career in the bank as a closed book. It was definitely over, and he must now think about the future. It was not a time for half measures. He could not go home. He must carry the thing through, now that he had begun, and find something definite to do to support himself. There seemed only one opening for him. What could he do? he asked himself. Just one thing. He could play cricket. It was by his cricket that he must live. He would have to become a professional. Could he get taken on? That was the question. It was impossible that he should play for his own county on his residential qualification. He could not appear as a professional in the same team in which his brothers were playing as amateurs. He must stake all on his birth qualification for Surrey. On the other hand, had he the credentials which Surrey would want? He had a school reputation, but was that enough? He could not help feeling that it might not be. Thinking it over more tensely than he had ever thought over anything in his whole life, he saw clearly that everything depended on what sort of show he made in this match which was now in progress. It was his big chance. If he succeeded, all would be well. He did not care to think what his position would be if he did not succeed. A distant appeal and a sound of clapping from the crowd broke in on his thoughts. Mills was out, caught at the wicket. The telegraph board gave the total as forty-eight. Not sensational. The success of the team depended largely on what sort of a start the two professionals made. The clapping broke out again as Joe made his way down the steps. Joe, as an all-England player, was a favorite with the crowd. Mike watched him play an over in his strong, graceful style. Then it suddenly occurred to him that he would like to know how matters had gone at the bank in his absence. He went down to the telephone, rang up the bank, and asked for Smith. Presently the familiar voice made itself heard. "'Hello, Smith.' "'Hello. Is that Comrade Jackson? How are things progressing?' "'Fairly well. We're in first. We've lost one wicket, and the fifty's just up. I say, what's happened at the bank?' "'I broke the news to Comrade Gregory. A charming personality. I feel that we shall be friends.' "'Was he sick?' "'In a measure, yes.' Indeed, I may say he practically foamed at the mouth. I explained the situation, but he was not to be appeased. He jerked me into the presence of Comrade Bickersdyke, with whom I had a brief but entertaining chat. He had not a great deal to say, but he listened attentively to my narrative, and eventually told me off to take your place in the fixed deposits. 
That melancholy task I am now performing to the best of my ability. I find the work a little trying. There is too much ledger lugging to be done for my simple tastes. I have been hauling ledgers from the safe all morning. The cry is beginning to go round. Smith is willing, but can his physique stand the strain? In the excitement of the moment just now, I dropped a somewhat massive tome onto Comrade Gregory's foot. Unfortunately, I understand, the foot in which he has of late been suffering twinges of gout. I passed the thing off with ready tact, but I cannot deny that there was a certain temporary coolness, which indeed is not yet past. These things, Comrade Jackson, are the whirlpools in the quiet stream of commercial life. Have I got the sack? No official pronouncement has been made to me as yet on the subject, but I think I should advise you, if you are offered another job in the course of the day, to accept it. I cannot say that you are precisely the pet of the management just at present. However, I have ideas for your future, which I will divulge when we meet. I propose to slide coyly from the office at about four o'clock. I am meeting my father at that hour. We shall come straight on to Lord's. Right ho, said Mike. I'll be looking out for you. Is there any little message I can give to Comrade Gregory from you? You can give him my love if you like. It shall be done. Good bye. Good bye. Mike replaced the receiver and went up to his balcony again. As soon as his eye fell on the telegraph board, he saw with a start that things had been moving rapidly in his brief absence. The numbers of the batsmen on the board were three and five. Great Scott! he cried. Why, I'm in next. What on earth's been happening? He put on his pads hurriedly, expecting every moment that a wicket would fall and find him unprepared. But the batsmen were still together when he rose, ready for the fray, and went downstairs to get news. He found his brother Reggie in the dressing room. What's happened? he said. How were you out? LBW, said Reggie. Goodness knows how it happened. My eyesight must be going. I mistimed the thing altogether. How was Warrington out? Caught in the slips. By Jove, said Mike, this is pretty rocky. Three for sixty one. We shall get mopped. Unless you and Joe do something. There's no earthly need to get out. The wicket's as good as you want. And the bowling's nothing special. Well played, Joe. A beautiful glide to leg by the greatest of the Jacksons had rolled up against the pavilion rails. The fieldsman changed across for the next over. If only Peters stops a bit, began Mike, and broke off. Peters' off stump was lying at an angle of forty five degrees. Well, he hasn't, said Reggie grimly. Silly ass, why did he hit at that one? All he'd got to do was to stay in with Joe. Now it's up to you. Do try and do something. 
or we'll be out under the hundred. Mike waited till the outcoming batsman had turned in at the professional's gate. Then he walked down the steps and out into the open, feeling more nervous than he had felt since that far-off day when he had first gone into bat for Riken against the MCC. He found his thoughts flying back to that occasion. Today, as then, everything seemed very distant and unreal. The spectators were miles away. He had often been to Lourdes as a spectator, but the place seemed entirely unfamiliar now. He felt as if he were in a strange land. He was conscious of Joe leaving the crease to meet him on his way. He smiled feebly. "'Buck up!' said Joe, in that robust way of his, which was so heartening. "'Nothing in the bowling, and the wicket like a shirt-front. Play just as if you were at the nets. And for goodness' sake, don't try to score all your runs in the first over. Stick in, and we've got them.' Mike smiled again more feebly than before, and made a weird gurgling noise in his throat. It had been the Middlesex fast bowler who had destroyed Peters. Mike was not sorry. He did not object to fast bowling. He took guard and looked round him, taking careful note of the positions of the slips. As usual, once he was at the wicket, the paralyzed feeling left him. He became conscious again of his power. Dash it all, what was there to be afraid of? He was a jolly good bat and he would jolly well show them that he was, too. The fast bowler, with a preliminary bound, began his run. Mike settled himself into position, his whole soul concentrated on the ball. Everything else was wiped from his mind. End of chapter 27 Recorded October 18, 2005, in Oceanside, California.